Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast, a podcast where we discuss many of the greatest films in the history of cinema and have a blast doing so. We call ourselves the Classroom Critics simply because we're teachers who love film. Am I right? Correct. Yes, sir. By me, by, by me, I mean myself, Bill Ivers, joined, as always, by my good friends and fellow educators, Andrew Martino and Walter Freeman. So tonight we bring you our analysis of It Happened One Night, directed by Frank Capra, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, based on a short story by Samuel Hopkins Adams called Night Bus. And uh, I'll tell you, this film is one of three that swept the Oscars, uh, in this case, 1934, but Sweeping the Oscars, I mean, winning the five major categories, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Clark Gable, of course, Best Actress, Claudette Colbert. So um, when I introduce this to my film students, you know, I, I think you can kind of sort of say, okay, Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Sweeping the Oscars. The other one is, uh, is um, Silence of the Lambs, correct? And then the third one, I say, the, the third one is, a film called It Happened One Night. Many of them say, what film? <laughs> so I guess we'll get into that at some point. But, you know, when I ask myself, you know, when I think about this film, I ask myself, why do I love it perhaps as much as any film that I've ever seen? You know, I, I, how does a, a little film like this, like rank in my mind with, you know, among the best of them? You know, I mean, why is it impossible for me to, dismiss this film as as trivial you know uh i was reading a couple articles on the film and uh, roger ebert said in one in his uh his review of it in his great movies uh section of his website he said it's the it's one of the easiest movies to love in one of the hardest films to think of as a work of art which i think is an interesting quote which we can get to but you know to me it is a great work of art and uh, it's kind of a reminder that sometimes that the camera somehow, and there's no way to explain this, the camera just sometimes captures magic. And uh, it doesn't always just come down to formula or even, you know, effort or even talent. Sometimes, you know, it just, it just happens. And, uh, you know, despite the fact this film was rushed, took just four weeks to make, uh, the film stars didn't really like the script or <laughs> didn't really buy into it all that much. It was kind of just another film. Uh, Claudette Kilbert, she's uh, she famously complained to her friend after the, after the, the, the film wrapped, she told her friend, um, quote, I just finished the worst picture in the world. <laughs> you know, apparently she was just, you know, griping the entire time. She was a, a real pain in Capra's. Uh, but, but, you know, the studio had low expectations of this film, didn't promote it much. The critics thought it was was okay, but sort of brushed it along. You know, yet it was when it was out for a few weeks, word of mouth just elevated it. You know, something about this film resonated with everyday people. You know, a depression era America just just ate it up. So, I guess I'll throw this question out to get us going. You know, why why this film? Why are we still talking about this film eighty something years? after the fact, you know, why are we still talking about the screwball comedy? Why isn't it this just another film from the early sound era? You know, uh, Ms. Colbert would agree with you. She, to the end of her days, she, she kept saying she could not understand the popularity of this film. <laughs> I, I liken it to, you know, the studios were cranking out movies. And like you said, they're shifting stars back and forth there. You know, the studio heads are coming in going, oh, you're going to be in this picture. You're going to be in that picture. And, and there was not like necessarily like today, studios make pictures. They want to make hits. They want to recoup their money. Um, you know, back then they wanted to make money, but they were just pushing stars into roles, throwing them from studio to studio. And, you know, eventually a film hits that taps into the zeitgeist, such as, you know, this or Casablanca, where, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just appears and suddenly it's just this massive, massive hit. Mm -hmm. Um but to answer your question, Bill, I mean, what's to dislike about the film? You know, it, <laughs> it goes down easy, but like you said, it's so well made that you often overlook, because of how smooth it is, you overlook its its craft. 
Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I think as well. This is actually the first time I've ever seen this film. So um, I, I'm watching it for the first time. And I, I came in with very low expectations because I'm not a fan of screwball comedies. Um, I'm not even a fan of Clark Gable. But, um, you know, 10 minutes into it, I, I really began to enjoy it. And I think that that's part of what it is. It's it's the time that it was released, 1934. Um, it's It's... It's an escape for a lot of people who are going through real life at the time. And it's, I think it's an hour and 45 minutes or something close to that. So it's a way for them to, to, to really escape into this almost fairy tale like story um, that is wonderfully executed by all of the actors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, getting back to what I think Walt said, yeah, I mean, um, stars were being lent out, you know, the stars yeah. who are obviously under contract and, uh, you know, uh, my Gable was lent out. What was the under contract for? Um, was it MGM? Perhaps not. Yeah, this not was sure. Columbia, which was where you shoved right. people when you were punishing them. I read an article that said you, you you put them in the movie in Columbia if you were punishing your stars, and he had been <laughs> he had been a pain, and they shoved them over. And this this movie put Columbia really. I mean, it was on the map, but it really put it on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, legend has it that or or it's been said that Gable was, uh, yeah, being punished for this. Uh, Claudette Colbert did it under ridiculous conditions. She, she had a vacation, uh, planned and she said, okay, I'll be in, I'll be in this movie. If you double my, my, my fee. And if we can wrap this picture up in four weeks so I can get, get on with my life and go on vacation. So, yeah, it's just, it's really, it's interesting how sometimes, um, I don't, I guess you call it serendipity, luck, whatever, and sometimes I think it's a, test, a testament to just sometimes people just don't understand the vision of, uh, in this case, the, the director or the, you know, uh, it just sounds, it just seems like sometimes people don't know what you're doing. Like, for example, getting back to maybe an earlier podcast with The Godfather, no one knew what, what Coppola was up to. <laughs> you know, no one, no one knew what would say, let's, let's make our, our typical Wells reference. No one knew what Orson Wells was up to you know many people just confused by the process and then i guess claudette colbert also at the um on oscar night she was going to skip it you know she was uh and, and i guess she was dragged to the uh, ceremony and she you know with absolutely no expectation of winning and she gets up there once she won and said you know this this really this is this belongs to frank capra you know that's what she said about her award um I wonder so you know and i'm like i'm with andrew this is the first time i've seen this film too and, and, you know, uh, if you ask me anything about Clark Gable, I, I would say, you know, I can do a bad Clark Gable impression mm. and that I've seen him in God with the Wind and now this. And, and, you know, he was a big star. But I mean, if I had just seen this film, you know, I would have thought he was a, a romantic leading man with comic timing. But if I'd seen him later in Gone with the Wind and not seen this film, I would have I would have said well, he's a romantic leading man. So um, I'm going to have to check out some more uh, of Gable's work. Yeah, yeah, you know, but uh, th this film, you know, it's the it's the granddaddy of all the screwball comedies. Yeah. Now I happen to like the screwball comedy, but I also feel, you know, I was asking myself what sets this apart. Um, and in in my mind, you know, and going back to your original question, Bill, uh, in my mind, this film struck me in in the first couple of minutes as not just being comedy, but having a heart. Um, the the scene that really made me you know, look closer was very early. He's arguing with his daughter. The father is arguing with his daughter and he slaps her. And, and that he, he's so shocked that he did that. And she's so shocked that he did that. And they have different, slightly different reactions. And then of course the regret on his face and the, she dives off the boat. And I thought to myself, this is, you know, that's a serious note. And that's a genuine relationship there, a complicated relationship, far more than I expected in a comedy. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm glad you brought that up, Walter, because it really shocked me as well. The, the, the violence for a 1934 movie. This movie is incredibly sophisticated for the time in which it was released, I thought. And I'm sure we'll talk about the risque um, aspects of it later. But that, that scene, which really establishes, um, you know, her independence in a way. We see that leading up to, I think those, that whole first 10 minutes is leading up to, to that particular scene. Then she jumps off the boat to escape. Um, 
she has to put water between her and her father. There's, there's some mention of distance there, but the violence with which he strikes her um, really took me uh, and threw me for a loop because I was not expecting it. Yeah. yeah but, but, and then, but the fact that it just wasn't a slap, that's had so much, right. uh, so much subtext to it. And, and right. you can tell how hurt they both were in different ways. And I thought that's, that's another level for what we would now def today define as a screwball comedy. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's a test, the, the actor, you know, the performance in that particular instance, Walt, that you're referring to, yeah, excellent reaction by the actor uh, whose name escapes me, but- Walter Connolly. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I believe he must've been directed to do that because uh, Cap uh, Capra cuts to him, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very intentional cut, I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's just Capra for you. You know, he's trying to capture uh, just this real bond between them. And I think the father, I think he's just overall just a very well-written character. You know, I think a typical writer could have made him out to be, you know, your typical tropey tyrant dad, you know, the, the villain of the piece, but he isn't, he really isn't. Um, you know, yeah. in the end, in the end, he really wants Ellie to be with someone she loves you know and he turns out to be quite quite liberal uh yeah. from what you would think in the 30s of a father towards his daughter you know, exactly she yep. she's she's in love with this man and physically mentally emotionally and he's all for it right not to mention that they're obviously uh from different social classes and he has he has no doesn't seem to have any problem he has a, i don't remember a single line in it that you know expresses any problem with the fact that he's just uh a reporter, you know, making a, a pretty typical wage for the time. Um, you know, he seems to be fine with that as long as Ellie is truly in love with him. And there that, is that there is that test that comes at the end of the film, right? Where where Gable's character goes in and demands his thirty nine fifty or whatever it is, um, and he thinks he's there for the ten thousand dollar reward, and he's not. So there's integrity that that goes along with Clark Gable's character as well. And I think that the father really, you know, he that that is an absolute test that the father is putting him through, and and Gable passes the test. Absolutely. You know, what's funny, and I just, you, now that you tied that together for me, um, so, you know, she was going to marry King Wesley, and in the end, he gets bought off for $100,000. He's a yeah. rotter. And Gable's character is referred to as the king in the opening scenes, but he comes in, he not only gives $1,000 back to his editor, but he's only asking thirty nine fifty. So again, there's, there's sort of doppelganger characters, and you can see, you know, all things considered, why she would love him, and certainly not this King Wesley guy, whom we, we see very little of in the film. And, and that leads me back to the to the fairy tale trope, right? Because it's it's finding out who is the authentic and who is the inauthentic, uh, and that's that's uh, something that runs all throughout fairy tales. I can't. When I saw this, it, I mean, it reminded me, as I said earlier, of a fairy tale, and I keep coming back to that um, that kind of motif. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah, and it's kind of a it's kind of a um, this is this is out, out, out of your uh, wheelhouse. Well, it's kind of a hero t hero tale in a way, a hero, hero's journey. It's a road picture, right? They they have a destination, and um, it's pretty arduous. Then, if you think about it, you know they're going from Florida, right? Miami. It starts in Miami, all the way up to New York in this little little bus. And I'll tell you, it's I think it's a real. You know, I think I think it just makes for some really interesting um, character development, plot development. You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's a pretty simple story. You're going from point A to point B, and these two characters need to uh, need to fall in love at some point. You know, and I think the funny, the interesting is, interesting thing is, is that you know the question is not will they fall in love. You know, I think over the years we've grown to know that when it comes to your romantic comedies, the template is that, you know, it's not a question of will they fall in love? The question is how, you know, how will it happen? You know, and I think it speaks to one of our, you know, part of our better nature that class distinctions should not stand in the way of, of love, you know, and in 1934, could, can we kind of say that this might be a novel or a relatively novel idea, you know? Um, yeah. Well, what I like too in that line, you know, because in these screwball comedies, it's never a question of will they or won't they. It's a question of will they. Of course they will, but uh, fall in love. But they, they don't 
go at loggerheads constantly, which is a lot of stuff, a lot of screwball comedies, especially today. It's just that they have to hate each other constantly until they don't. Here, there, there's a lot of give and take. There's some moments where they, they appreciate each other, you know, without falling in love at the beginning. You know, she's not totally repulsed by him. He's not totally lording her entitlement over her, but it, it comes up. Mm-hmm. It comes up. Yeah, even at the, the very beginning when she falls asleep on him, right? Mm-hmm. And he uh, puts his coat over her. You know, um, there's some tenderness there. So even at the very beginning, there's there's chemistry. And I think that's one of the the major successes of the film is that the chemistry is absolutely there between these two performances, two two characters. You know, I really see them as um, really kind of being in love or, or having feelings for each other, starting pretty pretty darn early in the piece. But uh, for me, I think the humor and the tone of this film really holds up. You know, I think much of Clark Gable's persona in this particular film seems modern to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think you're right. This, I think this film is, I'm not extremely well-versed in his body of work. You know, I've seen, you know, his pretty standard uh, films. And he's usually in these epic costume pictures. You know, he's usually like your typical golden age leading male which I think he does a great job at. But I think this kind of snarky, sarcastic kind of character for him is is a bit different. This kind of movie was kind of really offbeat for him. And I think you can kind of see that in the performance where he almost, you know, when you're kind of out of your wheelhouse, I think sometimes you can kind of go in two different directions. You can say like, you can kind of be unsure of yourself and um, kind of tighten up. But I think he just sort of had fun with this role. You know, he just, he looked like he was having fun performing this because it was extremely different for him. And I think it it just really comes through. And I think his character, I think it's very modern to me because I think his character and it comes through in his performance has this, you know, irreverence for authority. And you see it, you see it from the very beginning, his cynicism. He, he always seems to have, Gable in this, in this movie, his expressions always seems to me like he knows something, um, you know, something that you don't kind of thing, you know, um, in a different way, Groucho had that look, you know, kind of like for me, Groucho's humor is, was always 50 years ahead of his time. You know, um, I think Orson had that in his own way as well, but you know, Gable's sarcastic delivery in this particular movie, I think really holds up. I love the way he outwits, uh, Ward Bond's character in the beginning. Um, if you didn't catch him, Ward Bond, he was the uh, the bus, the very first bus driver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, Ward Bond's there. You know, he comes off very 1934, you know. Oh, yeah. And then Gabe Wolf, you know, he seems to be coming out of the future here. You know, he kind of, uh, you know, he, I forget exactly how, what he says, but, you know, he, he just, co- the, the conversation pretty much ends with, uh, Clark Gable saying to him, you got me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and then he goes back, you know, he throws the newspapers outside of the, uh, outside of the bus. And because when he asks Ward Bond's character, you know, um, these seats are for two people, aren't they? And Bond's character says, well, you know, maybe they don't, maybe they do. And Clark Gable, of course, says, well, this is a maybe, maybe they do. So did you get that? Did you get that? You know, his performance, did it seem like to you like it, you know, again, more modern, I guess is probably the best way I can. Yeah, I think, and to your point, which I think is an excellent point, Bill, I have two thoughts about that. Number one is there's um, a recklessness to his character. And we see that in the very first scene he's in, right? He's, he's drinking, he's obviously drunk, and he's, he's throwing his career whatever of it is down the, down the tubes. Um, but there is that kind of sarcastic intelligence to him as well. So he's somebody who doesn't play by the rules and that is established right in the beginning. The second part of that, which is not unrelated um, and it goes against, as, as you both said earlier, against type with Clark Gable, this is a very physical 
um, performance for him. So the fact that he's very tall and lanky, he really makes use of that. And, and I think we see this most profoundly in that um, hitchhiking scene when he's, when he's teaching her the different ways of hitchhiking. <laughs> and it's very physical comedy in that sense. And, and you almost have to be not self-conscious at all to make, you know, to make your body do some of the things um, that he was doing. So it's really, this role I see is the, the antithesis of what he does in, in Gone with the Wind. Um, which really, I, I, watching this film, because I've really never been a Clark Gable fan, I have new respect for him after watching this particular performance. Well, well comedy of that level is harder than drama. Yeah, I agree. And, in my, and, and you know, to me, a lot of people can play sad, angry, whatever. Yeah. But to do that, the, the scene you mentioned was, was a little piece of comic gold there. And, and it would have required somebody, you know, like you said, with a, a lack of self-consciousness. I mean, you'd see something like that from Jim Carrey without thinking twice, but to, to see it from somebody who's fairly stoic as Gable is interesting. Um, it's almost as if he was playing Kramer from Seinfeld before Kramer, you know, comes into our consciousness. There is yeah. that, that sort of lankiness to it. Um, maybe this is, this is Capra's direction. I don't know that much about the background of the film, but um, it, whatever Capra did, he got an extraordinary performance out of not just Gable uh, and, and Colbert, but everybody who's in this film. Well, in that scene, you know, Kramer always played to the audience. Gable yeah. was playing to her. Yeah, that's um, right. Good point. Very true. There's a, a, a thing I notice about the two characters too. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to chalk some of this up to the writers and to Capra, but um, yeah, he's a guy who doesn't play by the rules, but he is constantly a gentleman towards her throughout. Yeah. He respects her privacy. He respects her, um, her modesty, and he never attempts to take advantage of her. I read that this is the only screwball romantic comedy where the leads never kiss. Um, and then on, for her part, you know, she could have been very different. I, I, I think in, in lesser skilled hands, we would have come in and her marriage to King Wesley would have been arranged by her father. Mm -hmm. And the tension would have been that she's attracted to Gable because it represents her, you know, breaking away and rebelling. But, but Wesley was her choice in this and Gable is her choice. Yeah. She's a very empowered female character. Uh, and so it breaks some rules at the same time presenting us with some familiar characters. Uh, it really elevates it. Yep. And Andrew, you mentioned uh, Clark Gable as a, a rule breaker. And Walt, you just pretty much mentioned uh, Ellie as a rule breaker herself. They're, they're both uh, really breaking free of the expectations in their own spheres, right? Um, Peter is a reporter, but he is not the kind of reporter who... Um, is going to be reliable or, or someone who is just sort of a, uh, you know, desk copy kind of writer. He's, you know, he's almost like a freelancer. That's kind of the only way he can roll as a reporter. Um, and he doesn't, you know, he, he's not necessarily always at the bidding of his, uh, of his editor. He does things his way, but he always, he's always successful or not always, but he, he gets the story. And uh, Ellie in her own way, she's a, a rule breaker. So they, they seem to be kindred spirits, uh, just from different, different social classes, different spheres. So uh, I thought that again. That's a I think a just just it's good writing because they they see that they must see that commonality in, in, yeah. in one another. And Robert Riskin is the screenwriter on this. Um, he's he's the one who adapted the story. So you know credit has to be given to him for for writing this wonderful script. But to, to get to more to your point, Bill, um, you know the fact that they're they're both breaking rules. Let's not forget the conventions at the time and, and even today, right? So they're, for all intents and purposes, they're, they're not necessarily romantically in, involved yet, but it's there and she's married. So there is that transgression as well, uh, that they're breaking that sort of social convention of, you know, um, there's, there's um, the, the hint of an affair that's, that's going on. Absolutely. Yep. And I, th I think we have to really put ourselves back during this time, uh, you know, audiences back during this, you know, this must have been shocking. I mean, a, a right. lot of, a lot of what we're watching here, um, you know, I, you know, let's get to the, um, if you want to get to the walls of Jericho scene, you know, and, and just how, uh, how risque that was at the time. And I get, you just, you wonder how a lot of this made it past um, was the Hayes Code, was, was that, does that exist during this time? I, I may. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm wondering. I don't, I may, it may not have been, but again, I just, you wonder how this got past, um, you know, um, 
the, the, the whoever checked, you know, the, yeah, the, the sensor. Yeah. Yeah. The sensor. Well, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is wrapped up within innuendo and, and, and suggestion. Um, you know, Walter, you pointed out earlier, they never kiss. Uh, they, they come very close uh, at one point, um, but they, but they never kiss. And um, we know that the final scene to spoil it for all of you. So if you don't want to hear now's the time to do now. You know, um, the light goes out in that motel room and the, and the suggestion is one of, of sex. Um, uh -huh. Finally getting together and having sex. And, you know, this is, this is also what makes this a comedy as opposed to those more dramatic uh, aspects that it ends in, in, in that sort of culmination. Um, but I, I want to go back to something, not to sabotage the conversation where we're going, but Walter, you said it earlier, and I'm, I'm really curious about this because I ask my students about this a lot, that we tend to not take comedies as seriously as, as we do dramas, um, certainly not as seriously as tragedies. Yet I find this, for as comedic as it is, a very serious film for some of the reasons which we've already articulated. Um, but it, it is a comedy in the, in the, also in the classical sense that it's, yes, on the one hand, it's dealing with this heiress, uh, but on the other hand, it's dealing with this, um, you know, blue-collar reporter who, to me, functions very much like um, a private detective. There are, there are similarities there in the way that they conduct their lives. So there is that transgression. Um, but I do think that this is a very serious film. Um, as, as much as, as I suggested, it's escapism when we started the, the podcast tonight. So I, I don't know if you, if you got the same sense of that as I did, the seriousness. I, I, I did. And I mean, there's a lot of, you know, obviously colorful characters that we're going to want to touch base on and talk about. And the famous Shapely. But, you know, there's a scene that for me, I mean, this is set in the middle of the Depression mm -hmm. and it embraces that within its film. And there's a wonderful, wonderful scene in the middle of it that seems to be almost isolated. But when they the people are singing on the bus and you see the people from uh, all walks of life, they're stuck, mm -hmm. you know, the woman who's who's starving to death, the sailor, the traveling people. And it's just a, a wonderful little moment of, um, of realism, I guess there. And, and I, you know, that's it. I mean, in the middle of all of this, there's this beautiful little love story and there's some little comic touches, but they never, even in the hitchhiking, they never play it for laughs. You know, yeah. the, the comedy, like, um, it, like Gable's not mugging in that scene. His frustration is evident. It's just comic. So, I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I think that Capra probably, I mean, I'll give him some credit again, just said to them, you know, play it straight. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, for all his faults, uh, Capra was a very, you know, he was socially conscious and, and throughout his body of work, he did have a lot to say about the society in which he lived. And yeah, I was moved by that scene as well, Walt, with the, um, with the kid and, you know, how he tells Peter that, you know, his mother hasn't eaten and, yeah, I don't know how how long it had been, and you know, and uh, they give the, the the kid the money, you know, and uh, which, you know, was <laughs> Peter at first was a little bit miffed by it, but he softened up and he said, uh, you know, I got millions is what he said, which I think is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool moment. And I just yeah, it's, it's interesting how that work that's worked in there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think getting back to the uh you know the, the final scene where the the walls finally fall which uh, if, you know i think with that scene every time i watch it you almost feel like just going you know fist pumping and going you know it's just it's just such a a fantastic resolution it's such a satisfying ending and i think it really answers okay so the title it happened one night i mean what's it yeah well i think what happens after that curtain falls that's <laughs> so I think that's even in the title, it's, it's kind of risky. What is the it? Well, <laughs> you know, it's like much ado about nothing, but uh, yeah. different. You, you know, what's funny though about that too, and that is incredible. It's one of the best endings. Um, you know, I, I like some like it hot's ending, but but this is one of the best endings because not only is the gag a running gag throughout the story that ultimately pays off with that scene, but the two scenes within this film, you know, this is a film that subverts us like like Andrew was saying, that the comedy comes out of seriousness. And in this, the two scenes that I would say would be the most overtly sexual in the movie aren't about sex. And that's the one where he dead looks her in the eye and takes his clothes off, including his shirt. But it's not about sex. It's there. That's a power struggle right there. Who's going to break first? And then later in the hitchhiking scene, when she pulls her dress up and flashes her leg yeah. uh, in, in a little case of one-upmanship, you know, he, pretty much emasculating his thumb and all the phallic symbolism there. 
And again, those are the, you know, that you could argue that those, there's skin shown in both scenes, but neither of them are about sex. Good point. Good point. I, I was shocked when he actually took his shirt off in front of her for this time. I was, that's another, you know, instance I wasn't, I wasn't expecting at all. Yeah. And, and he just, he's dead staring at her. <laughs> See if she's going to yeah. break. Did you guys, have you, have you heard that piece of, I don't know if it's <laughs> film lore or if it's based on anything um, factual, but uh, legend has it that when it was completely outlandish when Clark Abel took his shirt off that he wasn't wearing an undershirt. And uh, it's been said that undershirt sales plummeted <laughs> uh, after that because um, if Clark Gable doesn't wear an undershirt, by God, I'm not going to either. <laughs> I read that. He, uh, he couldn't work getting the shirt off with his comic timing, so he just went without it. And, and legend has it, undershirt companies were trying to sue the studios for hurting their sales. Oh, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, I, that, that scene, the Walls of Jericho scene and the... Um, the motor in, I think that's just a, an incredible scene. It, it's, it's one of those scenes that can stand alone. I mean, obviously um, it's when the, within a very important context, but it's just a, one of those great tightly written self-contained scenes yeah. that communicate, you know, just, just so much about these characters, you know, on, and I think, I think it's really helpful to, again, to appreciate, you know, the social context here. Um, but even without that, the, the the piece still holds up. You know, when I show this to my students, they they are they're pretty impressed by that particular scene. You know, let's think about it. I mean, everyone back then watching this film, everyone went to Sunday school, right? Then they 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 knew exactly what the walls of Jericho are <laughs> or were, and um, that's not something that could be assumed now. That that was a reference that was <laughs> just just a given, right? Right. So, you know, sort of think of audiences back then seeing Claudette. Colbert's undergarments being draped over this, you know, I guess this attempt at decency, right? <laughs> that uses a, a very specific, well-known Judeo-Christian reference. Um, that again, that that's that's risque, and of course, they were unmarried, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they lied about it. <laughs> uh, so, again, you know, Peter burying his chest and. It's just, uh, I think it's a, just a really cool scene. I just love um, how the scene really builds. And uh, I think she is particularly good in the scene. You know, she's on the other side of the wall and, you know, we're, we're seeing her just listen, react. She looks so vulnerable. She looks so, you know, the, the same bold, um, tough, independent woman, you know, that, that's been going throughout this film. She's suddenly, um, she's just, she softens, you know, and she just, uh, she looks, looks so vulnerable in that particular scene. She's scared. I mean, she's probably scared perhaps on the one hand, but I think there's just a lot of complexity going, a lot of uh, things going through her mind, but there is romantic tension, no doubt. I think romantic tension is a big, big part of it. There's a sense of intimacy too with those teen, with those scenes that that is established, and and it's almost instantaneous. Uh huh. Yeah, he's he's kind of taunting her in a way, isn't that true? You know, he mm -hmm. sings the big bad wolf song, and he says something along the lines of, um, she, she asks him, uh, "Who are you?" That I mean, we got to remember she they haven't known each other for very long, but she says, you know, you know, by the way, who are you? And he says, uh, he doesn't respond by giving his name immediately. He says, uh, I am the whippoorwill that cries in the night. Yeah. I am the breeze that, that uh, caresses your soft face, something like that. And then she says, well, I mean, what's your name? And then he says, um, Peter Warren. And she says, Peter Warren, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. And he says, um, I don't worry about that. You'll be giving it back to me in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a, it's an incredible scene. And then she says, uh, the great payoff at the end of that scene is when she says, uh, okay, good night, Mr. Warren. And then he responds by saying, good night, Mrs. Warren. <laughs> so it's just, a, it's just, I mean, it's a wonderfully written scene. And uh, 
Yeah, I mean, am I, what do you think? Did, you, did, that, did that scene strike you as as well in in terms of uh, just? I think it's so important for the the development and the chemistry. It just it just really moves the film forward quite a bit, moves the story quite a bit. It's interesting because they can't it can't move forward, and and that sense of chemistry is there, but it's really propelled because both of them are are, are play acting. Um, they're they're pretending to be somebody else. So there is that that sense of innocence and childhood that it goes back to. And again, I think this ties in with our, with our themes that we've been talking about so far with this, um, you know, this trans, um, transgression and, and the theme of, of innocence and, and all of that. And these are rule breakers and, and without adults, they get to play. And, and we see the, the possibilities for play in these scenes. And by play, I mean, you know, pretending to be, a, those two pretending to be a couple. Right, exactly, yeah. I think it's very interesting and pretty rare too that you see a leading lady of Claudette Colbert's status at the time uh, playing a character who essentially wears the same outfit from the start yeah. of the film to the fin- you know obviously she wears the wedding dress at the end but uh, that's not that's not a typical thing you know it's usually uh, you want to see fashion you want to see you know um, you know char- you know characters who exhibit various you know a whole array of wardrobe and but uh and i like how that scene she puts on his pajamas yeah you know she's wearing his pajamas and uh the next day she wears his robe and um and i, I love it there's another i think interesting moment because I, I think this film you know if you're going to watch this film as a you know kind of a historicist it's it's like you can just there's so much about this era other than the you know the depression that you know just so many norms back then that you can see in this film, uh, you know, obviously you have gender, you know, issues, gender roles that are uh, pretty clearly spoken here, but also somewhat turned on their head, mm-hmm. but small things, you know, the whole idea that, um, okay, well, if you want to take a shower at one of these motor ends back during this time, you went outside, you waited in line. And uh, I just love how she was so oblivious to that. You know, it's like the concept of waiting in line for a shower was completely foreign to her, you know, and she, she walks right up and uh, she tries to go in and she walks in on, on some woman. And then she, t- she trades raspberries with this little girl and she enjoyed doing it. <laughs> so I think she enjoyed, I think that's, that's one thing that's interesting about her character. I think she, she is not an heiress who was completely disgusted in uh, slumming it in a way, right? She was, she was enjoying, you know, getting on the bus, uh, you know, to, to some degree, um, did she, to, to me, she even though she was being called brat throughout, and there was little indications of her pretty clear pr- privilege, um, she didn't she didn't seem to me like overly, um, you know, bratty or um, she, she seemed pretty okay with, you know, um, living life like everyone else during this time. I wanted to harken back to something you had said where we see slowly how they incorporate themselves into each other, like with the fake trading of the last names, the putting on the pajamas and the robe. Uh, to me, the scene that, that goes along with that um, copies a little bit of Romeo and Juliet. And in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, when they meet at the party the first time, they speak a sonnet to each other, each of them overlapping the the quatrains and, until they get to the couplet at the end. And, he says one, she says one, then they say it together. And it's literally them sort of coming together. And there's a scene in here that does that for me uh, when they're in the hotel and they have to pretend to be the married couple in a fight so that the detectives don't, don't pick up on him. Yeah. And it, the scene starts out as, as her like, you know, getting into it. And then they, they're bouncing it off of each other in this natural rhythm. And then when the detectives leave, how much they realize that they just clicked there. And, and have the joy that they got in doing that. Quit your balling, quit your balling. It, it made me laugh, but then it also made me think too that that was as intimate a moment as it gets for them yeah. because it was about not necessarily what was happening, but what it, what, what it meant. Mm-hmm. I like that. And it was pulled off nicely by them. And you could see the afterglow in a sense of, uh, of their coupling in that sense. They had accomplished something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they found you know an easy rhythm that uh, they complemented one another in, in in 
in a funny way. It's powerful writing. Yep. And you have to trust somebody to, to, to riff off one another in the way that they did in that particular scene. So, and I'm not, I'm not speaking about the actors, but the characters that they're playing are, are really riffing off one another. And you have to let go of your ego in order for that to work. And, and both of them feel comfortable enough with each other to, to be able to pull that off. Right. Right. Exactly. I really like, um, I think the scene in the, woods is pretty moving when they um which i guess we want to back up a little bit i think uh before we get to that i think i just for me i think a a hilarious scene an almost demented scene is when uh um peter deals with peter warren's uh, not peter warren um shapely's attempt to extort him for money (laughs) which is it's pretty demented how he how he goes about it you know um shapely you know right off the bat we know that he's uh you know, kind of a creep, but then we later learned that, man, he's, he's, he's diabolical on top of it. So he plans to, um, you know, kind of uh, cash in on this reward thing. And then he's outwitted by, uh, by Peter, who basically <laughs> pretends to be a mobster mm-hmm. and um, basically threatens his, <laughs> puts the fear of God into him by basically implying and not, you know, not so many words that he's going to take care. You know, do you have a, do you have a daughter? You know, do you have a kid? Do you have yeah. a kid? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, then that's the last we see of, uh, of shapely. But then after that, I, th- I believe after that, you know, they end up, uh, walking, right. They end up, you know, going through the woods on foot. And, um, and is that, that, that I think that great scene where I think their, their guard is starting to be let down even more. Am I getting, it's just, yeah. What's that? When they cross the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, that's not that. That's after the walls of Jericho, correct? Well, after well, it, walls of Jericho occurs a couple of times, I think. Yeah, that's uh, a running gag. Yep, it, but, it, yeah. it had already been it, that was already established prior to this, if I remember correctly. Okay. And it yep. happens again after, I believe. Yep. It's still, it does. It's still at least, there. At least one more time. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So I think. Yeah, I think now that time has passed and they're 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 deeper in their journey. I think the, um, there's that, I think really powerful scene where Clark Gable is putting, uh, I think this is around the time actually where Gable's character is starting to act a little bit, you know, grumpy towards, um, Ellie. He's he's kind of playing, uh, I don't know. He's trying to pretend he doesn't care as much, or he's probably trying to fight the feeling that he has. He's, he's probably getting a bit more perturbed that, within a couple of days, a day or two, you know, she's going to be back in New York and back with uh, King Wesley. And so he's, you know, he, he, I guess he's probably trying, he, he's probably mad at his own feelings that, okay, why am I falling for this girl? This is not, this, she's married. Um, so his defense mechanism is probably, I'm going to, I'm going to be a jerk to her. <laughs> but um, then at some point uh, he sees that she's cold and he takes his jacket and puts it over her. And uh, that's, when the kiss was going to happen, right? You, right at that particular moment, it's like, oh, this is yeah. when it happens. This is when they fall in love. This is when they're going to kiss. But it doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't happen. But you can clearly see that they that they want to. That she's waiting. And uh, Gable restrains himself. He says, you know, that's the way he the way he acts it out. It's just like, you know, she's married. You know, this is not going to work. I'm not going to. So going back to I think your earlier point, Andrew. Yeah, he has he has a particular code that he lives by, and um, he just you know, in the scene ends. There are many times he could have taken advantage of her disadvantage, to quote Humbert Humbert from Lolita, um, but you know he never does that, and that that I think is that solidifies his integrity uh, as a person, as a character, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yep. he he makes her bed first, if you know, with the hay. Um, so he's doing everything in, in the, you know, chivalry is not dead in this film, uh, when it comes to Clark Gable's character. Uh, and, and they, again, they're playing off one another very well. I think we can't forget also that this time another theme emerges and it emerged a little bit prior to this is the theme of hunger, which coincides with the time period as well, right? They're both very hungry. Um, they're getting hangry, although that word wasn't in use at the time, but you can see it playing out. Um, and, and I think you're right, Bill, they're, they're, you know, you get on one another's nerves when you spend a lot of time in, in close proximity 
uh, with one another too. But I think the hunger aspect is really coming out at this time. And then it, it plays itself out again with the carrots uh, right after this. Uh -huh. yep. Nibble it on the carrots. She does eat the carrots eventually, right? Yeah. She eats one. She does, yeah. That's right. Can I ask you guys a question about this film? So this film is the supposedly the prototypical screwball comedy. And um, when I finished watching it, it immediately popped up, you might like. And I started watching His Girl Friday uh, with Cary Grant. You know, a film that was made nine or 10 years after this one. And, you know, clearly in the screwball comedy genre. But from the get-go, they were emphasizing the screwball more. It was frenetic. Yeah. The dialogue was zippy and fast-paced. Now, this film, to me, I'm wondering why it's the prototype for the screwball comedy because it's so much more than that to me. As you said, there's those elements of drama, there's that craft in the writing and the directing. Whereas in the screwball comedy, it seems in a very short time that after the genre was identified, I guess, that it quickly became uh, almost farcical franticism. And this film is anything but frantic. I mean, yeah, you got your Shapely in there and you got your Donker, the guy who tries to rob him in the car, but you don't really have that sense of desperation and freneticism that you get very quickly in the genre um and i'm almost wondering if this this is in itself is it a screwball comedy or is it a comedy that gave birth to the screwball comedy while being something else entirely well doesn't the uh the con the the metaphor of the screwball comedy like doesn't refer to the fact that something it it fools you or it's, or it's supposed it's designed to change the direction or fool you in that you know these two people who aren't um they don't seem right for each other at all on the surface but in the end um you know you, you're you're fooled they they are actually see now i thought that would be the romantic comedy because the romantic people to me that's the romantic comedy trope with screwball to me suggests farce yeah or physicality or mistaken identity or desperation, you know, we're trying to hide a leopard, we're, uh, yeah. we're trying to, you know, get this baby back to whoever owns it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I, I did not see this as a genre picture at all, um, like the other screwball comedies. So I think it's the latter to answer your question, uh, Walter. I, I think that this sort of gives birth to something that ends up becoming, or, or, I don't think it evolves. It may, it may be a de, it devolves into, into what is the screwball comedy. Not to, not to be critical of the screwball comedies, but I think they took aspects of this film and capitalized on those particular aspects. Okay, that's your good point, because, you know, you could argue that, that uh, every, every painting after the Mona Lisa is just the Mona Lisa because right. there's a nose and an eyes and a mouth, but it's not the Mona Lisa. <laughs> not the Mona Lisa, right, okay. right. So aspects of it. I, I, that's what I, that's how, I mean, I, I reserve the right to change my mind after a few more viewings, but that's, what, that's, that's how I would think of it. You can just, you, you can pick those moments, Ali. You said the hitchhiking scene, the carrot scene, the, the running gag scene, the shapely scene. There's these moments of it. But the picture as a whole, as we've been talking about, is very thematically rich. It's, yeah. it's, it's very cleverly written, well acted, well directed. And so, um, you know, it gave rise to the genre without necessarily being the defining picture of the genre. Right. And I think that's what makes it such a, a fantastic film. Um, at least one of the things that makes it such a fantastic film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess like anything else, sometimes you just, the genre goes to its extremes and yeah, you know, so. Exactly. Um, well, yeah, I, I would identify modern screwball comedies and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, but you have, uh, there's something about Mary, the hangover, uh, even you could argue raising Arizona. Yeah, um, absolutely. Things like that, which they're, you know, and, and they, they're now relying more on crudity than on, on anything else. But, uh, the 40 year old virgin would be another one. Yeah. Right. Right come a long way. But again, as I said, if you watch, watch the opening of His Girl Friday and from right from the get-go, you have this bickering couple with this witty, zippy dialogue uh, and the characters are sort of um, cartoonish. And, and, and that, was, that was 10 years after this one, very, very quickly. Right, right. And Cary Grant is, is also almost synonymous with that, but also synonymous with that tall, dark, and handsome uh, stereotype as well. Right. So I guess when, when they were making, uh, when, when Capra was making it happened one night they weren't saying to themselves oh this is a screwball comedy we got to do this do this do this but 10 years down the road they're 
it's probably exactly what many of them were saying, you know, <laughs> you know, we got to have this, we got to have this, got to have this. Exactly yeah. right. I don't think this is formulaic at all. And I think that's exactly what it's about, that the screwball comedies use a certain kind of formula. This right. invented the formula, arguably. True. Yep. What's interesting, it's like, it's like when Hawthorne writes Twice Told Tales, he's not attempting to invent a new genre, but then yeah. Poe comes along and says, well, these are short stories, and this right. is what a short story is, and from then on, everyone was writing the single effect short story. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or detective fiction with Poe, for that matter. Mm -hmm. Yes. The invention of yeah. the detective, as we know it. So um, th there's that as well. Can we, um, if you don't mind, to switch gears a little bit, I'd like to talk about the sets for this because one of the things that I noticed was the claustrophobic aspect of this film, that there always seemed to be more often than not enclosed in spaces. All right, the bus obviously is a, is a crowded space, but from the telephone booth right at the beginning to those small hotel rooms, everything seems to be very claustrophobic. Uh, and then that's juxtaposed with some of the outdoor scenes um, that they're with. I didn't know if you guys picked up on that or if you did what you think about that. I did. I thought you said, let's talk about the sex. And I, I was like, Andrew, we just spent 20 minutes talking about the sex. Let's do this. I, I, it took me a second to realize you said sets. Uh, so I apologize. That's our own version of screwball comedy. I was pondering your question going, what's he saying? Um, I'll, I'll let Bill start. The small stroke that I'm having. I mean, I mean, that might attest to the film's budget. You know, this is... Yeah, this film doesn't didn't have a very elaborate budget, so three hundred twenty five thousand dollars to be exact. Right, right. So you have that. So you know they they probably have um, hastily designed sets. You know, I, I would I don't know for sure, but I would think that you know going from the motor in to the um, you know the various cabins that they stay in that they were just uh, you know built sets on sure. sound stages perhaps. Um, it does open. Uh, it does open up. You know, once you get into you know a couple of the exterior, um, you know, scenes. You have um, you know the the hitch. You know, the road when they're they're physically on a on a country road, and uh, it seems to me that the um, the forest scene where they're next to the um, the river with all the hay I, that that seems to be a set to me. It looks like a soundstage, but um, you know, I think Capra's. Um, you know, I, I think that's. Again, it might come back to Capra's direction and uh, just maybe the, the hastily made nature of the film. I mean, um, you know, the, the the craft of this film, you know, there are some continuity things going on that kind of um, show us that it was a, a film that was made rather quickly. Right. So I don't think there was a lot of, uh, there might not have been a lot of coverage, so not a lot of, you know, camera angles that really open up the, the scene that much so but um you know that that certainly can be thematic you know if you have scenes set in small enclosed places then you have you know characters who need to eventually fall in love be in close proximity you know um you know it's, it's pretty plot convenient in a way to have you know claudette colbert char character and having to sit in the same seat as uh clark gable's character you know it, so I just think it on plays top with of one another at one point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm going to have to watch it again, but I think, I think I might have to agree with you that, that they're constantly, two things are constant with them. They're in the frame tight and they're in motion, in motion. Um, because it's a journey. But I mean, if you look even the picture behind me, folks that are listening to this as a podcast, I have a, a zoom background of, uh, of them sitting on a fence together hitchhiking. You know, you could have done this as a wide shot to show mm -hmm. how lost or isolated or alone they are. And, you know, you would have a lot of space all around them. But instead, it's tightly framed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think if I, if I recall, that's pretty frequent. And I know the yeah. cinematography has gotten some uh, recognition in this film, too. So um, I'm wondering if, if Andrew's not onto something. It'll bear another viewing just yeah. for that aspect. But I think they are pushed together uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was suggesting that that might not be accidental, um, yeah. that, that, it, that is trying to make a statement. But then again, it might be over-interpretation in the literary critic in me coming out um, a, a little too much, trying to, I, I don't want to force a reading onto something that isn't there. But it is something that struck me, especially that, that's, that establishing shot with Clark Gable when, he, when he's in that telephone booth and he turns around and then he closes the door 
and then he's even more enclosed before. So, you know, than before. And, th and th there's this sense that both of them, for whatever reason, can't escape their lives until they're brought together. I think, too, that, you know, to kind of counter that, uh, you know, the, as, as in proximity and close as, as they ha you know, had been through the entire film, I think, you know, towards the end when, you know, they're, you know, I think it's on the wedding day of uh, Ellie, you know, she, there's a scene where, you know, perhaps they're fur further apart and, you know, there's real distance, physical distance established there where she's kind of on the stairs. Yep, exactly. Sur surrounded by all the male toasters and, you know, he walks out in this vast foyer, right? And yeah. I think, I, you know, I, I can't, I got to believe that's intentional, you know, that, that we're, yeah. you know, and, you know, they're very cold to each other. And what does she say? You know, here's the merry-go-round. Yeah, right. Because she's, she's about to get on the merry-go-round forever yeah. um, if Peter doesn't rescue her, right? And um, So, yeah, and, 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 you know, you have the outdoor wedding. And, uh, yeah, so I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think, um, you know, these – and I kind of going with what Walt said, these characters don't hate each other. I don't – you know, they – you know, they might pretend to hate each other at certain points. Yeah. Um, they – you know, might be annoyed at each other, but throughout the time, you know, from the very beginning of the film, I see characters who want, you know, they want to love each other. They, 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 they there's something within them trying to uh, connect with the other. Whereas yeah. I think it just flies in the face of, as Walt said, um, a lot of screw, screwball comedies where they're just, you know, just clawing at each other the entire time. I think I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things I, I, I reject in, in my own life and certainly in my in my work is the notion of fate that somehow brings the thing together, because I think that these two meet by chance um, that I, 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 I reject the, the notion of fate even in this film. But I, again, I could be wrong about that. <laughs> well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's funny. There's some aspects of these characters, though, that we're told but never see. The father, we're told, was kind of controlling of the daughter. Yeah. Uh, and yet in the end, when it turns out that she's finally making a choice in life that he sees as wise, he's also willing to let her go. Yeah. Although I laughed after she dove out the window of the yacht and then was it the headline read daughter escapes again. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there's references throughout the film, especially by Gable of, oh, your father's going to you know pull you out of this one. Your father's going to do that. But we never see that. And then um, there's rest, uh, references to her being a brat, but we really don't see her being very bratty. We see right. some element you know, of it. But so these are characters, uh, I guess, who are not what they seem, I guess. And it makes yeah. it believable then that they, that they come through this shift. Um, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't see her as a brat either. I mean, I think she's very likable. Uh, I think she's a character who's full of life. Um, I think her marrying King Wesley was just a way to, you know, in her own way, you know, a way to rebel. Mm -hmm. And the only way she could really do it at that particular moment um, but yeah, I think it would, it would have made a, a very different film if she was played to be a, you know, a stuffy, bratty character. And, um, because she has to be a character that Peter Warren would like, mm -hmm. you know, cause in his own way, Peter Warren is an adventurer. He's yeah. a free spirit and he's not going to just fall in love with anyone. Right. I, I was amazed at what a strong female character she was for uh, particularly for this, this time. Oh, absolutely. No, she is. You know, she, she's, she's going to do what she wants to do. You yeah. know? It's um, always on her terms, even when, you know, especially with the King Wesley, it's, it's on her terms, not her father's. Right. And even, even when she gets slapped by her father at the beginning, how does she respond? She, she trashes the, uh, yeah. the dinner. Yeah. You know, she's, she's, she's not going to put up with that. She hasn't, she hasn't just wilt and cry over it, which is, would be very understandable. She flips the table <laughs> and dives into the water. <laughs> so, um, and I'll tell you, I mean, her independence, I think, culminates with, I think, one of the most, you know, legendary, legendary moments in film history, you know, at the end where she, uh, she runs from the altar. Mm -hmm. You know, how many times has that been parodied throughout, uh, you know, the history of pop culture? You know, she is not afraid to basically give the finger to everyone in that in that uh in that crowd there 
uh, and, and just say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, resort to less than what I think I deserve in this life. You know, and I love it how the father arranged it, you know, <laughs> even as they were walking towards the altar, you know, arms linked with, with the father, um, you know, he whispers to her, uh, look, there's a car waiting for you. <laughs> He's complicit. <laughs> and he doesn't, he, he is, uh, he is such a, a boss, I guess you can say that he, he doesn't care about the embarrassment, you know, the potential embarrassment. Um, in fact, within seconds of her running away, what does he do? He lights up a cigar. <laughs> it looks very pleased with himself. <laughs> and he buys off Wesley for a hundred grand, which is a serious amount of money. Right. And when he calls, he says to him, you know, oh, hello, my would-be son-in-law. No, he says, no, he actually, he says, hello, my would-be ex-son-in-law. <laughs> But you know what's funny about that moment again is because even though he's not a character that's in, in the film for long, it's not deus ex machina. That car is not suddenly a change of heart for him. We've seen him be fiercely supportive of his daughter and we've seen that the seeds of it, you know, and his, his genuine love for her. And so, again, that's the skill where even this character who appears at the beginning and appears at the end has enough of a character development thread um, to make that not just in a matter of convenience, not the sudden, oh my gosh, he changed his mind because of the power of love. The character that's not written very well, but I think it, it works is Wesley. We don't see him overtly being a hand-wringing villain who clearly wants money, but his actions prove to be so, but the focus isn't on him. So I think that he is purposely underwritten to serve a purpose without distracting from yeah. the, the claustrophobic nature of the relationship between Peter and Ellen. He looks the part too. <laughs> yeah. He looks a little old to me. Uh, at least at least twice her age, no doubt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of movies he'd be, in Hollywood. He'd right. be more of a character and he's not, and it works. Yeah. It's true. Yep. Now let me ask you, do you think Peter was the driver of that car? Oh, I didn't even think of, I didn't never considered that. I mean, at the end with the car that's waiting? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know. I have to go back and watch that scene again. I, um, I mean, I, I don't think they don't. Do they show the car? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's. They do. Cool. Yeah. No, they show the car. Yeah. I don't know. Um, you know, it could very well be just a, uh, <laughs> a chauffeur. But um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. But. Um, yeah, I, I just love the, the line where Peter looks up at her before the wedding, you know, she's raising a glass and he says, you finally look natural. Which <laughs> <laughs> is great, yeah. And uh, yeah, when I show this film, the, the students always love, they always, I, there's always la laughing out loud moments when she makes a beeline from the altar and uh and runs away it's just a great great moment there she rips off her train and in goes so it's good to know that uh that school kids can still appreciate that almost 100 years later 86 years to be exact mm -hmm. this is old this is this is a yeah. very old film what i'm noticing about kids today like there there's a long time when i don't think you know the, the, the hyper minds of, of students would have necessarily latched onto this film but kids today this generation as much as people complain about them, they're really in touch with feelings and mm -hmm. and sense of uh, of emotional justice and safety. Yeah. And I, I can see in this film that that would be appealing, uh, you know, because this is about that. There's an inner life to these characters that matter. It's not just comedy. Yeah. And, and I can see where they would find that as a, as a way into this film. Mm -hmm. And isn't it great at the end where they, they, <laughs> They go back to that motor inn or a or a similar motor yeah. inn. That's that's where they choose to honeymoon. They're not in some, you know, they could they could go anywhere. They could honeymoon anywhere they want. Um, and Ellie's cool with it. Yep. Peter's cool with it. They are just somewhere out in the country, um, just like the first night they were together. And uh, I think it's just it's just really perfect, perfect ending. It's a really satisfying ending. So. Um, when you see that blanket drop. Yeah. <laughs> I especially like the fact that they didn't, they're not in that final scene that we do, that we do not see them. Oh, imagine, imagine how corny it could have been on, you know, in the hands of another director. 
you know, that really could have been horrible. Yeah. Know, but. When that blanket dropped, I have to admit, I was, I was, I went like, dang, I thought that that was pretty risque. I mean, there was, you know, like you said, the underwear over the, over the thing was one, but that was basically saying directly to the camera. Yes. It's happening now. That thing that happened one night, this yeah. is the night and it's happening. And I'm like, I, I, you're right. I thought that was quite bold for 1934, yeah. especially with all the talk throughout the film of modesty. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, no doubt. No. I think we can bring this in for a landing, guys. What do you think? I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I think um, I'm like you guys. I'm, I'm going to explore Clark Gable's body of work a little bit more, see if there's a, there are any other... Uh, gems like this one um that kind of uh push against his typical clark gable persona <laughs> bill you told me a piece of trivia about this film that i think we'd be remiss if we didn't like like throw out there to the listeners um that uh that warner brothers cartoon characters oh, took yeah. some inspiration from this film from my understanding yep yep yeah it's been said that um bugs bunny is a partial composite of a few things in this movie, you know, uh, including uh, kind of like Shapely's delivery and, you know, the fact that he refers to everyone as Doc and... Um, and Gable's carrot eating, right? Carrot, the yeah. carrot eating thing. This, carrot, carrots are eaten a couple times in this film, right? So yeah. there's that. So, yeah. Uh, of course, Dulceman said that Bugs Money is also kind of a... Uh, he was inspired a bit by Groucho Marx as, as part of, you know, his little Groucho thrown in there. You yeah. know, with the, instead of a cigar, you have the carrot. And, and then you have, uh, who's, what's the name of the, um, the mobster that Peter refers to is Bugs, right? Bugs, <laughs> so I forget who, Bugs something or other. Bugs Moran, maybe? Bugs Moran. <laughs> so, but anyhow. Cool, cool piece of trivia to, to Yeah, to absolutely. It sure is, it sure is, but. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Another great, uh, great discussion we had here. So I guess we'll bring this in for uh, a, a landing here. So if everyone, anyone out there has any other commentary, anything we missed, um, anything we got wrong, um, we would love to hear about it. Go on to our Facebook page, uh, like it first of all, and we'd love to hear you uh, join in on the, uh, on the discussion. Also, if you have any suggestions of what we ought to do next, we'd love to hear about that as well. Um, and please uh, rate us on iTunes if you get a chance. So uh, for Walter Freeman and Andrew Martino, I am Bill Ivers. This is the Classroom Critics, and we thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.